Hello. At CD Media, we are literally the tip of the spear. From Ukraine to the vaccine to Brazil, we've been at the tip of the spear on all these stories early. So if you want to know what's going on in the world early, before the rest of the news catches up, watch CD Media. But you know what? We have to make money. So we do have ads on the sites. But I know people don't like pop-up ads. They don't like ads. It's a problem. I mean, you get them on your phone, etc. If you don't like ads, you can sign up for our no ad subscription, which is a few bucks a month. You get access to all of our sites, not just CD Media, but the Manhattan, the Miami Independent, the Connecticut Sentinel, the Georgia Record, Armed Forces Press, Tsarism overseas in Eastern Europe, and CDM Espanol if you speak Spanish. So all of these sites are available with no ads. So sign up for our no ad subscription. You can find it on the websites. There's a pop-up and also in the top menu. And, and pay us a few bucks a month, support free media, support your children's future, support the fight against the corrupt media narrative. Thank you very much. And now let's get to our guest. Hi, everyone. I'm Christine Dolan. This is our CD Media Global Conversation Show in Plain Sight. And today we are honored to have, have with us Sasha Latapova and Catherine Watt. Welcome to the conversation, ladies. Thank you. Hi, Christine. So, uh, Sasha, you've been on before, and we, we've talked about the fact that for the COVID shots, because I, I don't want to call them vaccines or gene therapies, they're not traditional vaccines that the clinical trials and the manufacturing regulations were completely not uh, orchestrated the way that they should have been. And Catherine, you're a paralegal and you have looked at sort of the history of, you know, how did this all come about? So let's start with the fact that our friend Brooke Jackson, who is a Pfizer whistleblower, has filed a lawsuit uh, and it's in federal court in Texas. And she was hired to do oversee the clinical trials in September of 2020. And then she was fired when she brought it to the attention that that, that site was not following the, the, upper, the, the standards of practice for the clinical trials. So where do we begin in terms of you're now collaborating together and you're taking a look at the big picture? And, and mm -hmm. Sasha, let, let's start with you in terms of where we are going into 2023. Well, you know, just to recap, um, I started, you know, we, we uh, recently met, you know, Catherine and myself and figured out that, you know, our puzzle pieces fit perfectly. And so I started from the manufacturing aspect and from clinical trials, irregularities and violations of uh, good manufacturing practices that I was able to observe and document and uh, in, in these, you know, so-called uh, vaccine development exercises. Uh, and I was uh, concerned very much, uh, and I also was puzzled, how is this possible? Why is FDA allowing all these violations, flagrant violations, very obvious? Um, there's no question about that they did happen and uh, caused a lot of damage and a lot of injuries and deaths. And so myself and many other colleagues were very concerned and very puzzled, why was this happening? Why wasn't anybody stopping anything, uh, despite you know, us speaking and many other people bringing up the data and, and so forth. And, uh, and, it's, and it's because under under normal circumstances, mm -hmm. because of the 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 injury, the number of injuries and the number of deaths, they would have taken this off the shelf. Oh, absolutely. This would have been taken off the shelf almost immediately because of how much injuries it was generating right from the start. And most of the recalls, and I keep telling people, you know, most of the product recalls in, in the world, in the, U in the US, are voluntary by manufacturers, so many, because manufacturers have the systems to monitor all this. And Pfizer did, they, they, they did publish their own pharmacovigilance report, which showed 
over 1,200 deaths in the first few months. And they themselves admitted that they ran out of people and their software needed to be upgraded to manage the volume of adverse event reports. So they themselves have never seen a volume like this. And yet they haven't pulled it off. They, not, they did not stop. They did not do anything. So so then we have, we have Brooks suit. They filed. They sued Pfizer. Pfizer turned around and filed their motion to dismiss. And buried within that, we all discovered that Pfizer said that they had contracted with the Department of Defense for an OTA contract. Catherine, you want to explain what an OTA contract is? Because I think, you know, I, I know initially when I spoke to some of Brooks uh, lawyers, they didn't know about the OTA. And I said, and I basically said, what you have to do is, I mean, they use this type of contract in Nigeria uh, several years ago, Pfizer did. So I, I wasn't unfamiliar with it, but from the legal perspective, explain to our audience simply just what does that mean? It's basically just a carve out from normal federal procurement contracting that gives the contractors and the government agency much, much more flexibility to avoid regulations or bypass regulations or override them um, that would otherwise apply. And it also exempts them from um, sort of congressional oversight of the contracting itself. Um, it kind of puts that control into the agency hands without Congress being as involved and without as much reporting requirements to Congress. So they just have, so so the person who gets that contract just has to produce a product without any oversight of following any regulations that that product may come under under normal circumstances. Is that, is that essentially yeah? All right. So as a result of that, that could be one of the reasons why they haven't taken it off the shelf, even though they're aware of it. But whose responsibility is it to take it off the shelf at that point in time? If they know if they know this is causing harm, I mean, where does the onus lie in terms of leadership on this or so, dereliction of duty, I should say? So dereliction of duty, it's well. So as far as I can guess uh, here is because the DOD ordered these things under OTA from farmers and the way the whole structure was set up, which is not just the contracting part, but also the fact that. Um, the whole organization is essentially headed by the government, not the private mm -hmm. manufacturer. So we have U.S. government doing all the critical, I would say, executive functions around research and development and manufacturing of these, uh, they call them prototype countermeasures, right? So the government is essentially created this superstructure in which pharmas are only about third level down uh, as, as, as suppliers. And it's not just Pfizer and Moderna, it's also, it's also a huge number of existing DOD uh, contractors and suppliers. So because the government and DOD specifically is driving this, they, they are in charge of designing clinical trials. They are in charge of regulatory interactions. In fact, farmers cannot have independent interaction with the FDA around these things. They, they only have to uh, always copy BARDA and have BARDA representatives go to FDA meetings with them. That's how strict... Explain for the audience what BARDA is, Sasha. BARDA is Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. It's a... Uh, it's like the DARPA of HHS. DARPA of HHS, yes, exactly. So it's... it's And it's actually, if you, if you go on their website, their website address is countermeasures.gov, I think. But it's, it's countermeasures as a as a web address. Uh, and uh, so they are the ones designing, developing these countermeasures. They're the ones overseeing it. So it's the government making these things through BARDA and DOD. Uh, and farmers are only fulfilling certain parts, but they don't own this product. So that explains why farmers, while monitoring and counting thousands of bodies, did nothing in terms of withdrawal, recall or withdrawal, because I suspect they don't have that authority either. So Catherine, we know that in some of the foreign countries that have purchased the US pharmaceutical COVID shots, Uruguay, Australia, Israel, um, very early on, some of the officials there wanted to get copies of the contracts. In Uruguay, in the court, Pfizer said, sorry, this is you know confidential. The president's office in Uruguay joined Pfizer in court and said, no, this is confidential. We tried to get it from Israel. Then the Minister of Health came out publicly and said that they they, they knew about you know some of the injuries, but they didn't they didn't tell it to the public. I know in Australia, 
there are officials down there trying to get copies of the Pfizer contracts. Do you think, Catherine, that the foreign governments know that this is really a DOD contract as opposed to Pfizer? Because we know on some of these contracts that we have for Pfizer, for instance, with we have a contract between Pfizer and Albania. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the Brazil office, one is almost and, identical. Yeah, and, and the office is that negotiates this contract from Pfizer is based out of the Netherlands. But do people know that this is really a DOD product? I think it depends on the level of person that you're talking about. I think at the highest levels, yes, because I think they're in the World Health Organization's sort of consortium of state level, meaning federal state level Mm -hmm. um, architects or implementers of the program. But I think lower down the chain, like at the doctor level, at the probably at some of the regulator regulator level, they don't know. And Mm -hmm. Sasha has talked about this too, that there's like, there's a cutoff somewhere in the FDA where people above that knew it was a DOD project, knew it was a weapon, knew exactly what the whole protocol was. And the people below that level did not know. Mm-hmm. So, so Catherine, what was the most surprising uh, legal notion that, that you came across when you started to take a deep dive? Because this was not necessarily your forte, but you, you, you know, and and I think you know both of you, and I've said this before about Sasha and, and Catherine from from reading your body of work, you know, you guys would be great expert witnesses for some prosecutors if we can get some prosecutors yeah. on board. So, so Catherine, give us some highlights about you know what was the epiphany moment when you said, "Boy, this doesn't make any sense." Um, well, I figured out it didn't make any sense far earlier than I figured out why. Um, I was just watching what was happening in Pennsylvania and my town um, throughout 2020 and 2021. And I was watching what was happening in the courts in Pennsylvania. Um, the, the turning point was hearing Todd Callender's interview with Elizabeth Lee Vliet, where he talked about the World Health Organization and the international health regulations as this like overarching framework mm-hmm. under which nation states put in place all of the other, the implementing like statutes and regulations to comply with that World Health Organization international framework. Um, The most surprising thing so far has been the fact that Congress specifically attempted to abdicate all of its own lawmaking authority and check and balance power over the executive branch in some of these laws by by writing the laws or letting the lobbyists write the laws and then passing them in such a way that there is no congressional oversight or reporting requirements or mechanisms for the Congress to intervene once a public health emergency has been declared and assess the data and assess the basis for the emergency declarations. And in addition to putting their own abdication of power in the statutes, which they can't do because they can't dissolve their own power. They also cut the judicial branch out by saying that these same HHS declarations are not reviewable in federal courts. And when I found that, I was just like, it doesn't make any sense at all, but it does explain why things unfolded the way they did. You know, one of my lights, I guess it was a red light, and, and I didn't really have any questions, but when Biden came in, he didn't appoint somebody with a health background to be head of HHS. He appointed mm-hmm. the former attorney general of California. And I thought at the time, all right, <clears throat> I'm not understanding this, but this makes no sense to me. It would seem to me in the middle of a pandemic going into 2021, you'd want somebody with a health background, but you mm-hmm. had a law enforcement, you know, prosecutorial background, legal background. And I thought, you know, maybe I just wasn't paying attention to HHS through the years, you know, but it just seemed odd at the time. But do we do we know? I mean, if you have if you have this this non-accountable cabal of people abdicating their authority, abdicating their power, nuking their own, you know, right to oversee what is going on, who's ultimately re- responsible for this mess? Is it the executive branch? Yes, I think so. I think it's the president and the cabinet secretaries. Yes. And I think the higher level people in Congress may have known, but the other thing that 
is a pattern that you can find that I found again through looking at Brooke Jackson's case is that she has filed under the False Claims Act. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure exactly when this amendment to the False Claims Act was put in place, but it basically says you can demonstrate fraud and you can go after the people who have perpetrated the fraud, but there's a carve out in that law as well for members of Congress, for federal judges, probably for state judges too, and for senior executive service members, which is basically cabinet secretaries and assistant secretaries. So once the paper trail leads to those individuals as the ones who knew about the fraud and were doing it to the rest of the country, the False Claims Act can't be used anymore under the way it's written right now for so long as Congress goes along with it, the rest of the people in Congress. Um, and that, that pattern plays out over and over again in all of these different laws. There's carve outs for the people at the very top levels, like the president, like the SES members, like Congress members, and like federal judges, that they can't be held responsible under these laws. They're above the laws. Exactly. What about what about the Fauci's and Francis Collins, formerly with the NIH? Um, yeah, they, they would count as senior executive service and also... At the same time, they put in just um, federal tort claims exemptions. And the thing that the COVID specific crime shows or let us see um, was that the PREP Act, once there's an EUA in place, once the PREP Act has been invoked, all of the people who are contractors at the private companies like Pfizer, like Moderna, they also become classified as government employees just for the purpose of giving them the um, sovereign immunity as government employees. Even though they're private employees, they get classified as federal employees because that gives them the, the liability waivers and the, the exemptions. So, and, and does, does it all dribble down from the fact that this is a OTA contract with DOD? Is that I sort of the starting down. I would say it's, it's interlocking like components and the OTA is one component is the financial component. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the OTA just lets them contract in such a way that they they hide they hide a lot of information, including this. But the um, PREP Act is the piece. The PREP Act yeah. is the piece that that put in those those specific legal liability things. Mm -hmm. So explain, Catherine, what the PREP Act, explain that for the audience, what that is. Um, they're between 1983 and now, the people who write the laws that Congress passed have built up sort of brick by brick, a public health emergency framework under which once the public health emergency is declared, it's like a state of war or it's like a national disaster in that it sets off these other cascades of changes to statutory law and regulatory law. Um, and the PREP Act was one of those pieces that they put in place in 2005. Um, and they sort of buried it at the end of a DOD supplementary bill. Um, and that one was the one that handled the like the liability piece for the people who would be involved in handling EUAs. There's a whole another so sequence so these of are laws. The people, these are the people that are executing whatever... Yes. The Whatever the HHS decide that they're going to do tells them to do yes, and so that's what the Prep Act is. All right. So does the Prep Act cover? Um, we know that you know some people, at least here in the United States, had their sh had these shots given you know in drive-throughs, okay, in parking lots and things like yep. that. So people, I mean, I even interviewed some people who were volunteer firemen because the fireman mm -hmm. was getting some money, and so they would go and they could minister shots, even though they're not nurses or medics. Uh, some, you know, some of them would do just paperwork. Mm -hmm. Would those people be covered by this and have no? They are absolutely covered by that. There was there was the original PREP Act declaration probably sometime in February or March. And then they did a series of amendments and they put all of these things out through the Federal Register, which means, again, they don't have to go through Congress. Or this, is any 20, this is 2020. This is 2020. They even were still doing them into 2021. They might still have been doing them. They just do amendments every once in a while. And so the last time I checked, there were like 12 amendments and each level of amendment to the original declaration either added another class of people, such as what you're saying, the firefighters or vaccinators that don't have medical training or whatever, 
or it expanded like the types of activities that would be covered or the products that would be covered. So it covers like three different things. It covers the people who do it, the products that they use and the acts that they do. Um, so Sasha, you've, you've, you've worked with 60, 70 pharmaceutical companies all over the world. You've been in the game for a long time. Uh, you've actually had, you know, you've been the client of Pfizer. They've invested in your company. So you know this world really well. Have you ever been around anybody in this world who's discussed how do we go around the mulberry bush and without being having no liability for a product ever going to market? Absolutely not. I mean, and, and again, because I, I never worked in the vaccines. I now realize that that's a whole different category. And actually, um, they're on purpose uh, a separate divisions and located somewhere completely different from other R&D facilities, which is unusual because, you, you you know, normally farmers want to co-locate R&D so that they can, you know, capitalize on certain things and, and minimize the cost and have people work on multiple projects. But this is not, it's like a separate company in a separate place. Nobody interact with them. Uh, and so the my, my world of R&D that I know, uh, every, you know, I, I, I did not see any fraud or violations. And on the contrary, when I worked with Pfizer R&D uh, in Groton, Connecticut, mostly and some in the UK, um, people were highly conscientious, ethical. They were trying to do things the right way. They were concerned about potential risks and trying to figure them out as early as possible, ideally in animal studies. Um, you know, so th there was always this big focus on safety and also liability was a big, big concern. For example, we wanted to, we found a, a product that Pfizer terminated in its uh, development for a specific type of, uh, of safety concern. So it wasn't proven. It was just, we have a signal and we're not sure, and we don't want to invest more money. We're going to put it on the shelf. We thought that we could resolve that safety concern because we had better technology to understand. And we, we thought it was a false positive safety concern. And we had a very good hypothesis about it. So we said, okay, can we license this product from you? We will do the next step study and figure out if this is true or not. And Pfizer said, no, we, mm -hmm. we, we won't be able to do this because we will have liability down the line. Or maybe a guilt conscience, you know. You, well, no, no, it was, it was really, yeah, it was really a technical issue. Everyone understood. And all we were saying, you know, we're going to do the next step analysis and see if we're correct or not. Even that, you know, they, they would not do because what if you guys are right? And what if it goes on the market? And then we even have frivolous lawsuits and then we will have liability. So they were that concerned about liability. Liability drives a lot of behavior, you know. So, so they would not do that. They wouldn't even progress something in the in the clinical trial if they had some kind of a suspicion that it was it had a safety signal. So that that's why to me it was, was like completely shocking. So, Catherine, um, the lawyers have to know this, right? When they're implementing this, I mean, it, 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 the it government seems, lawyers. Yes, the government lawyers absolutely know this. Yes. Do we in, in your research? Do you know? Who was, I mean, by name, do you know who or what office is fi are, are filing, the offices are filing these amendments? Filing the, oh, the amendments to the PREP Act and things like that? Yeah. Yeah, it's the HHS Office of General Counsel for the most part. Um, there was a, a lawyer there named Robert Charo, C-H-A-R-R-O-W. I'm not sure if he's still there. There is a Department of Justice lawyer named Don Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-E-N, and she put together uh, an opinion at the request of, I think Biden's advisory general counsel or something. Um, and her opinion was, was one of the cornerstones in the summer of 2021 after Biden had come in, but before he had put in the mandates, um, she was asked to give the legal cover for mandating EUA products by being asked the question, is there anything in the law that would prohibit this instead of asking is there anything that would give them the right to do it? Um, and so she put together this um, legal brief. Um, and so she was one of the people who absolutely knew what was happening and was providing the legal, I think of it more now as like mudslinging, like her arguments don't make a ton of sense, but there are enough confusing blind alleys in it that it could keep people 
well, first of all, because she classified it as medical products and not as bioweapons, mm -hmm. um, but because they are bioweapons, they need to be regarded in a different legal way. Um, so yeah, those the government lawyers knew and because of the, the way in which they presented information to people, they, they sent a lot of the lawyers, the private lawyers down blind alleys too. So there's a pattern. There's a yes. pattern, uh, we, we, we call these vaccines, but they're not vaccines, they're gene therapy. There's a pattern here that they're really countermeasures. You know, people like to distinguish between bioweapons, offensive defenses, it doesn't matter. Bottom line is, are they bioweapons? Are they considered countermeasures coming out of DOD? And it's becoming, it's becoming clearer that they are, even from a legal point of view, because of the manner in which these groups of people want to protect it. And it almost seems as if they're going to have, they're going to state the policy, make certain that their dairy areas are protected to m make those choices like mandates. Mm -hmm. And just so that they're covered later on, if somebody wants to challenge it legally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but what, what about the intent here? I mean, if you, if you want to unleash something, you know, to be harmful among people and have, that product distributed internationally to your allies mm -hmm. and to other countries, what does that say about the character of these people that are running this government? Yeah. They're absolute criminals. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the bottom line. And it's, it's, you, we, we allowed criminals to write laws and law enforcement guidelines for themselves. So what do you expect? It's exactly what the, the product that we have now. Do you, um, Sasha, do you have any question right now that these are bioweapons? No, absolutely not. I, I know for a fact these are bioweapons. These are, yeah. um, well, and in, and actually we should think broader. It, these are biochemical, radiological, nuclear right. weapons potentially because we don't say know. That, say that again slower so people It's a, a chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear uh, weapons potentially because they're designed and developed by a chemical, a chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear consortium and ordered from those companies. So since the the uh, um, implementer or you know I'd say the the, the pro provider of these is this consortium of which you know Pfizer or they're their part or uh, their suppliers to them uh, that therefore we should have have you know more open mind and broader investigation seeing what is actually being delivered under these contracts what is actually in the vials because that's still an open question we still mm -hmm. don't know what it is and how it functions how it injures people. And because we have such a gigantic variety of injury have never seen before, um, we we need this information. We need to investigate it because we don't know how to treat these people. We don't know what they were injured by. Right. I call it bioweapons mostly because whatever, I, I agree with Sasha that it's C, CBRN is C-Burn, the, uh -huh. the Um and that we don't know what's in them. I just call them biological weapons because the effects are on biological human beings. The effects. Yeah it totally messes with the biology of a living, any living human being. Is there and is it, Catherine, is there any law, international law that would come to the conclusion that these are illegal, illegally manufactured and yes. distributed? And that's also part of the pattern in which they constructed the opportunity to do it. Um, there's the International UN Convention Against Biological weapons, which is not the name of it. It's got a super long name. Right. Um, and then that was 1975 ratified. And that was put into US law in 1990 through the work of Francis Boyle. He wrote the US version and it was codified at 18 USC 175. However, both the International Convention and the US statute have a carve out for products that are either dual use classified, classified both as offensive or defensive potential, or can be characterized or are characterized by the people creating them as being for prophylactic or protective or other sort of defensive purposes. And that's just basically legal gobbledygook to protect their dairy heirs, correct? Correct. Okay, so- Renaming, so renaming of things. If you rename, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, a missile as a prophylactic um, right. product, yeah. then you can do it. You right. Know? 
So where, where does this leave us? I mean, you know, people need to understand this. I mean, is it going to is it going to take a Bonhoeffer in the legal field, a prosecutor, a politician, a world leader to basically say to the U.S., you know, what are you doing? And, and how how does it get around the other sovereign laws in places like Australia or the U.K.? Are they all is everybody just in on it? I think everybody at the higher levels in all of the countries is in on it. I don't think everybody at the lower levels is in. I don't even think most people, members of Congress, know that this is what they have built and what they have authorized and what they have funded. So I think the project has been for a while and still is getting them to understand what it is they've done without knowing that they've done it so that they can take a stand and say, we're not going to do it anymore. And we're going to roll back the things that we put in place to make this possible. How does how does this affect you know the research that's done um, for gain of function? Is is do you think that, that this structure protects gain of function yeah. research, you know, to be allowed? Yes, yes, they they do they use the same structure for gain of function, and they they just outsource it to private contractors under under OTAs. Call it um, call it uh, epidemiologic studies of bats in um, you know uh, East Asia. And there you go, and then you can do it. I mean, this is this is Frankenstein application of science mm -hmm. because it, yeah. it, prote it protects anybody from liability knowingly, unknowingly being involved because they're at a certain level with a certain suit on. Yeah, absolutely. They they've they've taken over. So the Department of Defense has taken over uh, practically all pharmaceutical industry through. OTA so through so much money that they're throwing it at it on the through these OTA BARDA driven countermeasure exercises, they're now delivering about 50% of this RD spent to the pharma industry through this method. And of course, that the, if you if you're one buyer buying 50%, of course you control the whole industry. So now pharma industry is completely captured by this. And they've done the same to uh, practically, you know, all science that's re that relates to all the scientific fields that relate to this. Obviously, academia has been captured long before pharma was captured, uh, and uh, you know, various other related things. I mean, they they just call it dual use, and they, you know, start classifying the research that people are working on, um, and uh, and 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 that's how they capture it. And then they throw incredible amounts of money. Like private industry cannot possibly compete with this. Yeah, I was I was explaining to somebody that you know when private investors invest in some kind of a startup technology uh, in the research in academia, they risk the money. Mm -hmm. When the government does it, they don't. They can print more. And, and the tech pharmaceuticals are kind of stuck now because. There's no other market for them. There's no other market, and uh, it's it's kind of like you know this this um, the curse of having this endless stream of money coming at you from for this particular application. That when it stops, you're done, and you can't you can't recover from it, and you can't focus on other real legitimate productive applications anymore. That's how they do it. The other piece of the the gain of function dual use research of concern and all the different terms that they come up with is that that's how they make the public argument in Congress and in the media um, on things like antimicrobial resistance, like mm -hmm. antibiotics that don't work as well over time and pandemics, because they do need and they have used those things as the rationale for getting these things passed, getting the laws passed on the grounds that these are very scary things that are happening they're going to get worse in the future if we don't throw tons and tons of money at it. The private sector is not going to throw tons and tons of money at it. So the government has to step in and um, without they need to maintain that ambiguity between offensive and defensive products and product research to keep the money going and to keep the well, to keep the killing going, too. Um, so, so I, I have I have two questions, Catherine, for you from a, from a legal point of view. Under what circumstances can can the Emergency Use Act not be applied? Is it just if you have an early treatment, an alternative to a vaccination? 
There are actually four conditions and I would have to look them up to see them, but the one that was most problematic for them was the alternative treatment one. Um, Which makes sense because if you take a look at the actions that were taken yes. behind the scene about early treatments, whether it be hydroxychloroquine or in fact, it was ivermectin. Right. Uh, we know what happened with Andy Hill in the UK when he said, yes, ivermectin seems to work. And then he changed his opinion and then decision, I should say, he admitted on tape to Dr. Tesslari that he was under pressure. We know that Unitaid had given money to his university, $40 million, after the paper was, was published and he changed his mind. Um, we know that people didn't want to create vax hesitancy uh, because then people wouldn't take these shots that were already paid for. Is there a legal screeching halt point at this, you know, to... to no, I don't think there is until it gets shifted out of the regulatory framework and into the criminal bioterrorism framework. And so that's what I've been working on for many, many months now, um, because some of the other um, conditions for the EUA hinge on the comparative risk assessment made by the HHS secretary between the pathogen that's spreading allegedly COVID or the SARS-CoV-2 and the risks and benefits of the product that they want to give the EUA status. But both of those risk um, assessments are solely in the hands of the HHS secretary and don't require any data and don't authorize any review of the decisions. And so those are three of the four things. And the other one being there's no um, alternative treatments. Um, but I don't I don't think there is a halt point anymore in the regulatory arena because it's not a medical product, it's a weapon. So the only stopping point is for people to understand that it's a war, that these are weapons that were under attack and to treat it that way in, in war crimes um, and treason type settings or- Nuremberg like Code. Strategies. Yeah. Nuremberg Code. Okay, so S Sasha, Knowing what you know now, and you take a look retrospectively to what I know I have focused on as, as a journalist, when the FDA has all these meetings, when they, they, they say that they want public comments, they say that they're going to have, you know, licensure approvals, all of the, what is that theater? Oh yes, it's it's performance art. And in fact, they're, they're even um, curtailing even the amount of you know, they, so they, they, do, they do sort of a, a edited version of performance here because they don't, they issued a COVID uh, vaccine development guidance without any public comment, which is highly unusual. So they just wrote it up, published it as final. There was no, uh, no opportunity to comment for anyone. And it's full of, oh my God, garbage. And, and I can go for an hour into that. Uh, they did uh, the most recent uh, approvals, so-called approvals, they did not. Uh, convene the advisory committee, which is again highly unusual, uh, and that there is no urgency even anymore. You could convene it. There's no, you know, nobody's uh, limiting travel or participation. You can do it all on Zoom anyway. So they don't convene those those anymore. The advisory committees, which were extremely important, and they always did them, even though legally they're not required to, but they always did them because they needed the buy-in of the medical community that whatever they're approving is actually also, uh, you know, uh, key opinion leaders have looked at it and have, you know, positive or negative opinion or whatever, and they have opportunity to discuss. So, so at least in the past, they were having this process and now they just did away with it. They just go and stamp whatever that comes across their desk, you know? So, so yeah, it's, it's fake and it's getting faker. Um, and uh, you know they don't care, but it but it almost sounds as if we have we have we have a, a, a cabal of sociopaths. Yes, you really have to have a concerted effort to know that you're changing. You, you're legally within your bounds to act this out. So far, if you first of all, if the public doesn't understand it, two, if you have a succession of laws that basically protect you and certain people at certain levels all right mm -hmm. if the public is stupid 
I mean, that means that when the government says, you know, we're worried about misinformation, disinformation, when they in fact are the actors of this, I mean, that's, that's the definition of a sociopath. Yes. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, I, I, the, the most common question I get is, why are they doing it? Why would my government do this to me? Why would Department of Defense do this to me? They're supposed to protect me. And I said, well, I, I cannot get into a criminal mind, but as far as I know, a lot of mass murderers actually enjoy it. So, well, there are people, I, I did find out when I first started covering human trafficking, you know, 23 years ago, I, I was just horrified by what I saw and witnessed and interviewed a lot of, a lot of traumatized human beings. Yeah. And I couldn't quite understand it. And I remember some people, some nurses in Nova Scotia telling me, because I wanted to wrap my head around this. Why do people do this? They said to me that there are people on this earth who inflict pain for their own pleasure. Yes. And there are incentive structures for the people below them who are not doing it for those reasons, but have other reasons like keeping their jobs, raising their families, not getting thrown out of their house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. where do we go from here? What, what, what is it that people need to know uh, that, I mean, with this knowledge, what do they need to know, Catherine? Um, I think the takeaway is that it only keeps going because the Congress and the judges at the federal and state level and the state legislators and governors and prosecutors continue to defer to laws that are unlawful or illegitimate. And when they stop deferring, pieces of the pieces of the structure that have protected the criminals doing it will start to fall and expose them to the criminal proceedings that could and I think will happen under the laws that were normal before this. So I think focusing on getting the people who are in those positions to understand what they've been complicit in, whether they knew it or not, and to stop deferring to the illegitimate coup d'etat basically that has happened is, is the, the way to focus not only individual efforts, but also like once they do start figuring it out, once the Congress members start figuring out what's happened and the, the, the nightmare that we are now in, helping them move that along. We know that many people in Fauci's camp, the people who are, I call the coronavirus people that hunt for the bats and take the, take the, the you know, the bats back to the PT, Petri dishes, you know, in the laboratories for gain of function. They're raising money. They're raising mm -hmm. a hell of a lot of billions of dollars uh, from governments all around the world, from pharmaceutical profits uh, off the backs of the people that have taken these shots. We know that uh, foundations, Ford, Rockefeller, Gates, there are there, a lot of them are involved in, and have an investment in that, which is the engine that creates the market for the disease, which creates the market for the vaccinations for pharma profits. Is there, and we know that they're telling us that this is going to happen again, mm -hmm. and we still don't know the origin of this because there hasn't been a full-blown investigation that's transparent. Yet they're pushing shots and vaccina seasonal vaccinations at the Science of Technology office at the White House. Mm -hmm. uh, we know this in 2021. In the documents you have, Catherine, and in the research you've done, has when these people at HHS or DOJ, do they report, who do they report to in the White House? Who do they report to in the White House? Is it the is it the Office of Science and Technology? No, I think it's more of a coordinated committee type activity. Um, Interagency task force type. Yes, that kind of structure. Yeah, it's probably under that PAMSI thing. Yes, the, the, the Public Health, Health Emergency Medical Countermeasures Enterprise. Enterprise yeah, because it's, because it's a quasi-private, quasi-public mm -hmm. enterprise, similar to the um, the government-sponsored enterprises Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that mm -hmm. were involved in the mortgage meltdown. Right, 2008. This is, this is the um, the medical products, bioweapons mm -hmm. version of those mm -hmm. 
organizations. And that committee includes HHS, USDA, Department of Justice, Veterans Affairs, the whole thing. And I think that's where the coordination happens. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the funding sort of gets funneled through. And it's also probably, Sasha and I were talking about this recently, it's probably exempt from FOIA because it's a quasi-private organization. Mm -hmm. No, it's yeah. not exempt for whistleblowers coming out and talking to people like me. You know, no, that's, 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 that, that, that's, you know, if you can't do a FOIA, then you develop a source um, for whatever, uh, you know, however we do that when we do it. Oh, Sasha, <clears throat> from your arena, now knowing what Catherine knows, and Catherine, you, I, I want this for your question as well, and you now know what Sasha knows. How scary is this for you guys? <sighs> scary. It's... I don't I mean, know. Is, I don't, well, I don't is know. it so big that it's it's like, you know, it, it, it's the Alps? Well, it is the biggest crime that I can think of in human history. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. Um, I, I, it's not scary, though. Uh, I find it more grief. My, the feeling yes. I have more more than anything is grief. Yes. And, and, because and anger. Grief mm -hmm. and anger because we're both mothers and it's for our children that are going to inherit this. Um, and I, that's why, you know, I'm extremely angry and, and devastated, but not scared. Um, the, this can be resolved and can be resolved, as Catherine said, through criminal prosecutions. And there's mechanisms. Uh, this is actually can be, you know, all these illegal laws can be undone easily mm -hmm. by Congress as long as they start exercising their power right. that they have. You know, or state level governments can start exercising power that they have. We have... A great example of Alberta in Canada, uh, yes. in the in the mm. you know totalitarian dictatorship of Trudeau. Here we go. They just decided that they're not going to comply, and right. lo and behold, they have a free country, right? Free province within yeah, a country that's taken over by Trudeau and Freeland and taking your money from your bank, uh, and you know, and they're influenced by Davos. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it's it's up to the state and it's it's local state action and up to the state governments to say we're not going to comply with this BS from federal government they're criminals and start prosecuting them. In fact, you know we we were discussing like Florida has laws against bioterrorism and bio warfare agents and they can be used. Yes, they can confiscate the shipments coming in by DOD across their border and immediately declare them bio weapons, declare their distribution to be criminal, and destroy them or keep them for evidence. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the first step that needs to be taken because then they can find out when they take the evidence of what the hell's in the vials. Yeah, right. exactly. Wow. Well, it's a sobering topic. Yes. The two of you have done, you know, a, a very, very deep dive in your own specialties. Um, and, and thank you for doing it. I mean, seriously, is there anything more that either one of you want to say as, as we close out this, this interview and conversation? They're still adding more pieces. They just they just put in Congress just passed in the NDAA for 2023, um, the Global Health Security Agenda Act. They changed the name slightly, but they've been trying to get that in since 2016. So it's not it's mm -hmm. not like all of the pieces are already in place. They have the people who are running it, the sociopaths, have plans to add more pieces. And um, so one of the first things to happen would be for the the members of Congress to stop digging with them, to stop, to stop adding more, more bars to the cage. Um, and they do, we know, do we know, Catherine, um, off the top of your head, uh, who actually w was the, was the member who pushed to have that included in the NDAA? I don't know because it's been introduced and then pulled and reintroduced so many times since 2016. I don't remember who, who put it in for this one. Okay, we'll take we'll take a deep dive on that um, because yeah. that's important. I think and, that's and part is, of where the, the interconnection between the World Health Organization and the U.S. apparatus is through that global health security agenda, and that's that's what they call it. They could, right. they've been calling that since 2016. So. Right, and we, and we know that uh, under the HHS this year, or last year, I should say, 2022, that it was the HHS Global Policy Office, for lack of a better word who created mm -hmm. the amendments for the WHO 2005. Right. And yes. this coming week, there actually is a behind closed door from Monday to Friday or Monday to next Sunday, uh, a deliberation on countries coming together with their amendments. And we're gonna be doing a show on that later this week. So you're right. 
people may think that this is slowed down. You know, you're not required to wear a mask. You're not required to, to, to get your shots, but there is in no way that this is disappearing. Right. Yeah. Sasha, anything else you want to add? Well, no, I think this is um, great. And I um, encourage people to find myself and Catherine on Substack. Yeah, mine is just Sasha Latipova or Due Diligence and Art. <laughs> and uh, Catherine has a wonderful Substack where I found this information, you know, that helped me understand what's going on is Bailiwick News. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and we write updates there and um, communicate with people. I, I really I really do think that when we find a prosecutor that wants to take this on, they should hire you guys as expert witnesses, because I know that you have educated me considerably about, you know, what this big picture is, because and I think that it's, you know, it, I don't blame people, the average person for not understanding it. Right. Fully. Uh, yes. Because, you know, the only reason why I took a look at it in 2020 was it didn't make any sense to me with no medical or science background, but I certainly have a decades of corruption and uh, covering corruption, you know, worldwide institutional. And this is this is akin to the Catholic Church covering up the sex scandals for centuries. It went back mm-hmm. centuries when I took the deep dive on this in documents, you know, that were buried in the bowels of the Vatican and also in the diocese all over the world, you know, in the last 50, 60, 70 years. So it's important that people understand that it may be hard to believe. It may be outside of your scope in terms of your prisons to look at this, but there is an institutional model for corruption. And this this may be the biggest one we've ever seen in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. So I want to, this is a somber show. There's nothing good to report on this other than the fact that you, you ladies are, you know, on it. And you can come back anytime and talk to us and explain it as it goes forward, because this is not going away. This is everybody needs to just buckle up, take a deeper dive and pay closer attention. And again, Catherine, what is what is your Substack? Bailiwick News, B-A-I-L-I-W-I-C-K News at Substack. And Sasha, yours? Uh, Due diligence and art. All right. Ladies, thank you. uh, And we'll talk to you soon. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you.